Hello and welcome to a special episode of Working It, where we'll be discussing, debunking and debating one of the biggest buzzwords in the workplace today, the Great Resignation. And I'll be doing that with the help of FT experts and comments from FT readers and podcast listeners. We got such great feedback after our recent episode discussing the end of work that we thought it would be useful to dive deeper into the topic of the Great Resignation, as it seemed to really resonate with you, the listeners. So whatever you call it, the big quit, the great reshuffle, what is certain is that workers have been leaving their jobs at historically high rates. It's been one of the biggest workplace phenomena of the pandemic. But what does the big quit mean for managers, for workers, for the labour market and for you? To discuss this, I'm joined by Polita Clark and Emma Jacobs, two FT colleagues, they're columnists and they're both working at regulars. Hello, both. Hello. Hi, Isabel. So you've both written about the Great Resignation before. Let's start off by seeing what sort of comments you've been getting under your articles and in your inbox. Emma, can you read us some of the thoughts that readers have had under things you've written about the Great Resignation? So here's one. People don't leave companies but managers. If you as a manager or director have to sit with people to convince them to stay, you're already too late and you're far too removed from your people. I remember leaving a well-paid position at an oil major about a decade ago. Management was shocked. When I explained I'd been passed over for promotion three times with no tangible, actionable feedback on how to get promoted, I had to put a line in the sand. And then another reader says, if you love somebody, set them free or pay them what they're worth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the issues of dodgy managers is one we can perhaps return to in our discussion. Polita, what are the readers saying under your pieces? Well, some readers are saying what this person said very briefly and succinctly, which is that the main argument about the Great Resignation may be true right up until the fast approaching recession. Then people will turn back to reality. So some people think this is a very temporary phenomenon, not going to last very long. However, a lot of people, I think, agree with this reader who said that the basic problem is that most jobs demand too much time from individuals, especially when one takes the commute into account. Prior to the lockdowns, I would return from my commute exhausted, this reader wrote. However, the lockdown showed me there's a different, better way. With less work and commuting, I had the time and energy to do other things, such as spending more time with family and friends, exercising, cycling, hill walking, reading and learning languages. And I am now very reluctant to give all of that up and go back to the bad old days. And their sign-off is that we need to move to a four-day week. Oh, (laughs) well, let's chew over that later. So it's a lot to digest and I think the readers have summed up some of the points that come up again and again when we talk about the big quit or the great resignation. What do you think the big quit's really all about? What's behind it? Emma, you first. (laughs) I mean, there's about a million different views on this, so it's hard to pin it down to one. I'd love to say the great quit is about X, but I think it varies according to regions and also age and income bracket. But there's a lot of pent up movement. So in the pandemic, people were staying in their jobs and then leaving after things relaxed a bit. And then some of this is, as Polita's reader suggested, is rethinking priorities. Some people are burnt out. There's quite a few women that felt exhausted by homeschooling and working. And then there's a lot of just wanting better pay and conditions, especially in service sector. Yeah, Polita. We had a live event this morning where we chewed over some of this with some people in a co-working space. What what was the feeling there about the cause of the big quit? 
Yeah, well, it was interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people there were really identifying with the idea that they were burnt out. There was a lot of burnout out there. Also, some of them felt that the pandemic had induced a sort of existential questioning of purpose and meaning in life. And people had had time while they were sitting at home cogitating to think about what they were doing and really felt as though they could sort of move. But but I think Emma's right. If you look at the research, especially in the US, overwhelmingly the largest reason that is shown up in surveys about why people are leaving is to do with money. You know, People are not actually leaving the workforce by and large, except if they're over 50, but they're staying in the same industry, the same sectors, but they're moving for more money. So, so there might be a short gap, but they're not leaving the workforce altogether. Exactly. Except if they're over 50, which is interesting. So there does seem to be a permanent departure on the part of baby boomers in many cases. And I think burnout just became a really big issue and probably continues to be for a lot of people. Yeah, Emma, you've written about burnout. Are you still hearing a lot about it? You know, how likely are people to leave their job completely because of burnout or are they just likely to take time off? Uh, I think we're in a really weird moment at the moment because in some ways it was easier when we were in lockdown to say I'm burnt out. But now there's a feeling that as the virus has become less lethal in many places, that we're snapping back to normal and there's a kind of collective forgetting about what we've just been through and that we should somehow be going back to the way things were. So I think there's a bit of a transition phase at the moment as people try to adapt to, I mean, it's become a cliche for this new normal and just see how the next few months will bear out. I mean, I think people are tired. I mean, I'm still hearing about this. But I think there's a cognitive dissonance sometimes about why they're feeling tired because they're going back to the office and things are normal and places are opening up. But the commute is tiring. We touched on the commute. I mean, that must be a big reason why people don't want to go back to work. And and to touch on how employers can try and keep people flexibility comes top in survey after survey of people about what it is they want in their jobs. I mean, how how much of a disincentive is the commute, Emma? What do you reckon? Well, when we've done FT reader surveys, it's a massive disincentive. (laughs) People just see it as a time suck. I mean, I know there are people that say that it bookends the day, but I think that people are really looking at these sort of pointless things that they did, like commute. I mean, the same has been said a bit about business travel, They're looking at stuff around their jobs that they don't want to do anymore and trying to think how they can eliminate them or cut down on them. And so I think the commute is a big flashpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just see time and time again in surveys in countries around the world that the number one reason people don't want to go back to the office is the commute. And just today I was standing in line in the canteen talking to someone I hadn't seen for a while who has been coming in a couple of days a week and lives a little bit out of London, not much. And I was saying, well, how much is it costing? And he said it's £15 a day. And, you know, that is quite a lot of money that was not being spent for nearly two years. And some people are paying more than that here. And, you know, I think it's the cost and it's the time suck, as you say, that is really something that people don't like. And also just the sense of autonomy, as we were discussing this morning at that meeting, you know, the pandemic gave a lot of office workers a sense of freedom and autonomy that they had not experienced before. And it's really difficult to ask or persuade people to give that up once they've had a taste of it. Right, but lots of employers are mandating certain days in the office. I mean, Goldman Sachs famously with their five zero uh, days in the office, and they've had pushback from some of their employees, as have some companies, mainly in America, I think. Some media companies in New York have had pushback from their employees. 
Do you think employers are going to have to wake up to this or are they going to stand their ground? Felita, what do you reckon? I'm afraid that employers who have masses, hundreds if not thousands of people applying and desperate to get in through their doors are going to do what they feel like doing very often. And we're seeing evidence of that of the Wall Street investment banks. I think that they can say five zero, you know, you need to be in the office five days a week and they will probably not suffer unduly because of that. However, a lot of other organisations will. And we're starting to see big changes in the way that companies are allowing more flexibility and more autonomy. And I think that that'll probably continue to be the case. We're going to see a bifurcation in the workplace. And is some of this to do with, and we've talked a little bit about purpose, Emma, but you know, the sort of meaningless commute into a, an office you don't particularly want to be in, can that contribute to a lost sense of purpose or does the office provide in our perhaps idealised world here at the <laughs> FT a place to connect and collaborate with our people who might even be our friends? I think a lot of employers are having to think about the purpose of the office and what they do in it and to go back to the commuting point a lot of things we did pre-pandemic without thinking commute go to the office were just things that you just accepted as part of working life and the, the two years of not doing it by and large made people really analyse what is the point of me leaving my home? What is the point of me getting on the train in a way that you'd never thought about before? It was unquestioning. You would just get on the train and go to the office. I mean, I used to come into the office all the time and then I suddenly realised that no one was asking me to. I got there at this time that I thought I needed to and it would get me very stressed because I'd be thinking, I've got to drop off, I've got to get back. Nobody knew when I was in and it was just this weird false idea that I had to be in. And so it's really shaken up people's thoughts about their working life and what they want to be doing with it. And I think the office can give you purpose. It has been nice working with my colleagues, seeing as both of you are sitting with me. (laughs) The flip side is that people forget the value of the office because they've spent so much time away from it. And I think that where I'm sympathetic to employers is that they want people to try it out for a bit and remember what the good things were because we've become quite polarised in our thinking that it's either being at home or in the office and that you have to pick one extreme. But actually, if you remember that some of your colleagues are quite nice and gives you a sense of purpose and a kind of chat. But I think we've discussed before this idealised version of the office that we're all serendipitously chatting and kind of buzzing with new ideas just isn't always the case. I suppose a a very groovy office with lots of perks might be one way that employers can try to get people to stay. And we've talked a bit about perks, but Emma, you've recently written about stay interviews, which I think was a really interesting idea that I hadn't heard of before. Can you explain what that is? Well, I guess people are familiar with exit interviews, which are, you know, when people are leaving the company, their manager or HR will try to find out why they're leaving and what was wrong with their job and what the new employer is going to offer them. And so stay interviews are precursor to the exit interview which is to find out what would make you stay in your job or what it is you like about your employer or what you would like to do more of in your job that would get you to stay. Every employer I talk to is very conscious of the great resignation and it really feeds into their thinking about how to retain talent. I mean they are very worried about it even if it might not be a real problem in their sector. And how long do we think the Great Resignation is going to last? Peter, I think you've talked to the expert on this. 
Yeah, so I recently spoke to Anthony Klotz, who is a professor of management in Texas A&M University, or at least he is at the moment. He's about to join the great resignation himself and is fortunately for us in London coming over here to UCL. But he actually thinks that although he is not a labour economist and stresses that uh, he has no business making these predictions, but he thinks that there are a number of reasons why we're going to see above average resignation rates for some time to come. For example, he thinks that the act of resignation can be contagious in a workplace. And so if I hear that Emma's resigning, I might think, <laughs> God, whoa, what's she up to? <laughs> Maybe I should start thinking about that myself. And also the changes in the workplace that we've just been discussing, the move to more flexibility, hybrid working suits a lot of people, but really doesn't suit a lot of people as well. And it puts a huge strain on middle managers in particular. And it's interesting, I think, when you look at some of the data that's come out again from the US on high resignation rates and the ages that people tend to be, there has been some showing that it's 30 to 45-year-olds. That's the sort of classic age range for middle managers, really. They have been leaving in larger numbers than other ages, other cohorts. So, yeah, I think that for those sorts of reasons, we may well see resignation rates stay higher for longer. Although, at the same time, the Ukraine war and high inflation in general is probably going to have all sorts of impacts on the cost of living squeezes and therefore people's adherence to their jobs that we haven't really begun to sort of really see or understand yet as well. Yeah, so I was going complicated to, picture. I was going to ask about that because the cost of living is starting to dominate conversations now in terms of pay rises, but also things like it costs you more to get to work. So if it costs you more to get to work, but it costs you a lot to heat your house, what's a person to do? Well, Isabel, it's going to depend on each person. <laughs> but I, I think these are going to be the things that people factor into whether they want to stay or whether they're going to commute or whether they're going to heat the house or whether it's cheaper to go to the office and eat their food, subsidised canteen. I think all these things will really play into people's decisions to stay. And it is no small feat leaving a company or leaving your job. So I think when there's anxiety, it makes people much more risk averse. Yes, that's true. If the cost of living rises dramatically, maybe we will see some impact on it. But also we will be asking for above inflation pay rises. Inflation is very high. I guess we don't really know how that's going to play out. Are employers going to pay up and it impacts their bottom line or are they going to hold out and risk losing their staff? Polita, how do you see that playing yeah, out? Yeah, I mean, I think we're already seeing that play out and um, much higher prices for products produced by companies in the sectors that have been most affected by labour shortages in particular. You know, you see now uh, a restaurant meal that might have cost 10, 15 pounds is now easily 20 pounds, you know, that, and that sort of thing has happened really quite quickly here in London and elsewhere probably as well. So, you know, these costs are being passed on at the moment, but there's so much uncertainty and there is still a sense among employers that they really are concerned about the prospect of recession now. So, I think it's no surprise that we're seeing unionisation take off in some sectors, in some organisations, and I would expect that to probably be a trend that increases. It makes sense that if employers are nervous, they're not going to be too willing to be raising pay significantly, whereas employees are definitely going to be demanding it and increasingly turning to unions in a way that they may not have before. So that's going to be a big change that we'll be writing a lot about this year. We've touched a bit on age differences in terms of people leaving their jobs and you've said middle managers are people who often leave off, I'm guessing because of burnout, they've just had enough. I guess we don't know to drill down into that. But a lot of people in midlife over 50s have left the workforce. 
I went to a talk the other day that where it was suggested that it's a new iteration of the midlife crisis. Emma, have you talked to people for whom this is absolutely the case? Is it the combination of the pandemic and midlife that has just sent people running for the hills? Well, I guess my cohort of peers are in that that age bracket, and I've definitely observed it among peers. You know, people that have lived overseas and thought, where do I want to be with my family? The pandemic really highlighted mortality and people thought what they want to do with their lives and what's important in terms of values. And so I think there is a midlife crisis. You know, people have wanted to move near family. I mean, it's something that you've thought about in terms of being close to your family and in a way that might not have been before. No, it absolutely wouldn't. I mean, my mother is um, in her 80s and lives in Australia and I'm living here in London. And normally I can pop back home whenever, well, almost whenever I feel like it. But yeah, I hadn't seen her for two years until about a month or so ago. And that really does make you think about what you're doing and how long you're going to be doing it for (laughs) and what it's going to entail. But it's interesting, you know, Anthony Klotz, this professor who coined the great resignation term, He said that there's a theory in psychology I hadn't heard of before, terror management theory, that is actually quite well established. And one of the ideas in it is that when people are confronted with death or serious illness, it makes them, whether they realise it or not, just ask these existential questions about their lives and how much meaning and purpose there is in it. And he said that was one of the reasons that he felt that he was hearing people talking about resigning before the actual official figures reflected it. He could sense that that was what was happening through the pandemic. And I think probably we can all relate to that. And just to sort of wrap up a bit, it seems that workers are getting the upper hand at the moment for the first time ever in in some sectors, not everywhere. Polita, what can people do now to maximise their gains? What would you say to listeners? Well, I mean, number one, I think if you're in a managerial position, especially if you're in a senior management position, don't be afraid to experiment with policies that allow employees to operate more flexibly and provide more autonomy to people. And Also, think about things like, you know, there's a company in Toronto that is actually now paying people to do job interviews, 75 bucks a pop, which I think is something that nobody ever would have thought about and won't suit everybody. But, you know, just think a little bit differently about what you can do to make it easier to hire and retain people. Emma, have you got any thoughts for people trying to stop their staff quitting? Well, free food seems to be working for me. <laughs> I think being, I think talking to people about their career ambitions, especially with people that have been working at home, I think sometimes they felt invisible. There's been a lot going on, and I think this is a good moment to talk to people and recalibrate where they want their career to go. And you know, people want to enjoy their jobs. Yeah, we forget that actually. Work can be enjoyable, and it can be a real prop in times of trouble. You know, when I've been in trouble, I've loved my job. It provides a security and structure. My colleagues provide diversion and intellectual stimulation and there is free food in the canteen currently. (laughs) I mean, what's not to like? But I think overall, we're in this extraordinary moment and the big quit's going to go on and on, I think. But I suppose the only spanner in that works is the cost of living rises because I think we just have no idea where that's going and it might enable employers to get the upper hand again if people are too scared to leave their jobs. Thanks to Polita Clark and Emma Jacobs for this episode. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you and we're at workingit.ft.com or with me at Isabel Berwick on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you're an FT subscriber, please sign up for our new Working It newsletter. It's got behind-the-scenes extras from the podcast and exclusive stories you won't see anywhere else. Sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield, executive producer Joe Wheeler, and brilliant mix from Chris O'Shaughnessy. From the FT, we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and Manuela Saragossa and production support from Persis Love. Thanks for listening.